2 Corinthians 9, 8 through 11a will be our text. My intention today was to get two points out of this passage, and uh, we're only going to get one point out of one verse, so we're going to go a little slower today just because of um, what's on my heart as it relates to this really important text in specifically 9 and verse 8. So why don't you follow along as I read the 2 Corinthians 9, 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely, He has given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing, and increase the harvest of your righteousness, you will be enriched in every way for all your generosity. To join me as we pray. Father, this um, passage, I pray today, would be a key that would unlock so many things in the hearts of the people in this room and that will listen uh, via podcast or in worship to today. I pray that this text on giving would have vast, sweeping implications for so many other areas of our lives. I thank you for the light that is here, and I pray that you'd help me to do it justice today. Uh, Lord, speak, I pray, through your word and by your spirit to our hearts. Help us to believe the right promises from your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. My heart is full today because 2 Corinthians 9.8 is one of my all-time favorite verses in the Bible. I hope that you have kind of like go-to verses in the Bible. This would be one of them for me. I've used this verse more times in my marriage, with my children, with my own heart. I've, I've read it to folks in the hospital as they're getting ready for surgery. I've used it in marriage counseling. I, I've used it to deal with people in financial crisis. This verse, 2 Corinthians 9, 8, is a treasure trove of biblical promise. It is truly one of the great promises in the Bible. I hope that you know that the Bible is full of promises that we are called to believe. This just happens to be one of them. In fact, the essence of what it means to even be a Christian is that you believed a promise in regards to your own sin. You believed the promise from John 1.12 that says, But as many as received Christ, to them He gave the right to become the children of God. That's a promise. And when you received the Lord Jesus, it means that you heard that promise and believed that if I receive Christ's death as my own, if I receive His death, God will take His punishment and count that as effectual for me. He will give Christ's righteousness to me and take my sin and give it to Christ. And believing that was the first time that you banked your life and your soul on a promise in the Bible. But that's just one promise. The first promise that you believe and the rest, listen, the rest of the Christian life is lived by taking God at his word and believing the promises of the Bible, of which 2 Corinthians 9a happens to be one of them. What does belief in these promises look like? Well, it means that you see what God's word says, you believe it, and then you act accordingly. And when it comes to giving, Paul is inviting us to believe a promise, to act on it, and to treat the promise as if it is as true as what God knows it to be. 
So my entire message is built around this single thought. And here it is. Giving is one of the ways that we live by faith on the promises of God. The whole Christian life is a life of promise, and this happens to be one of them. Now, so far in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, we're, we've been looking at a number of uh, principles. We've seen 13 different principles. There's going to be a total of 20, and let me just very quickly review them. We've seen that generosity is motivated through personal example. It's rooted in the grace of God. It's linked to the Lordship of Christ. It's a part of spiritual maturity, and it proves the genuineness of love. We then went on to see three weeks ago that generosity is a reminder about the gospel, that it's rewarded, it's to come from what you have, meaning you can't give or pray about someone else giving, you have to give out of what you have, and it's part of God's plan for provision. In other words, in the same way that in the Old Testament God rained down manna to supply food for the Israelites, now in the New Testament sense He gives His children the things that they have in order to be able to meet their needs and the needs of other people. So God's means of delivering stuff to needy people is to give his children things and then let his children share those things with others. Now last week we saw a few more. We saw that generosity is worth the hard work. We saw how Paul sent three different men to the city of Corinth to be sure that this gift was taken correctly and that it would be delivered correctly. We saw that generosity is based upon a promise. He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Remember Chernobyl carrots from last week. And then Number 12, we saw that generosity is to be done in freedom, meaning that God doesn't um, look at a gift that's given under compulsion or that's required as a gift that really honors Him. So let me be clear. If in the course of this mission expansion project you feel like you have to give, keep your money. We don't want have to give money. We don't want that at all. We want you to be able to give in freedom. So if you can give in freedom, great. And I would encourage you to find a way to get your heart ready to give in any situation in freedom. But at the end of the day, God is not interested in compulsory or obligatory gifts. And finally, generosity is worthless without joy. That I see that God tells us He loves a cheerful giver. And what I'm laboring for is for your joy. That you would discover the joy of what it means to give. The joy of generosity to any worthy cause, not just to our church or to a building project, but for you to see that Jesus was right when he said that it is blessed, more blessed to give than it is to receive. Now today we're simply going to look at one principle. We'll finish up with four more in two weeks. But today, again, I had hoped to get to two principles, but I just got captured by the importance of this one principle found in verse 8. And it is this principle. It is that generosity is living on future grace. Look at verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things and at all times, you may abound for every or in every good work. Now, as we opened our study in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, I shared with you that the concept of generosity is rooted in God's grace. And at that time, I gave you a pretty brief overview of three different elements of grace. Just to be sure that we're all on the same page, what grace means. Although you've sung about it, you've heard the word, just want to be sure that you know what it means. Grace means unmerited favor. It's God giving me what I don't deserve. When it comes to salvation, it means that God gives me forgiveness even though I deserve judgment. 
It means that without Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, without His death on the cross, there would be only judgment for me, and God's grace is that He takes Christ's death, and He counts that death as effective for me, even though I didn't deserve it. That's grace. Grace has a more fully nuanced or fully developed concept throughout the New Testament. There's past, present, and future grace. Let me explain this. The first one is past grace. And we saw this in chapter 8 and verse 9, where when Paul was talking about giving, he reminded us about the great favor with which God has dealt us in His Son. That's the passage where it says that though Jesus was rich, He became poor, so that we who were poor might become rich. And what Paul was telling us there is that giving reminds us, looking back, it looks back on the grace of God that has been bestowed on us. A, a looking back as to how we have been blessed. And I tried to help you see that every time you give, you re-anchor your heart back to the fact that God has been incredibly gracious to us in the past. That's past grace. There's also another kind of grace that we'll call present grace. This is the kind of grace that Paul talked about in verse 1 when he says to the Corinth, the church at Corinth that the people of Macedonia had received the grace of God and what a grace God had bestowed upon them in their giving. This is a grace of empowerment. It means that God works in you. You still don't deserve it. It's God's empowerment in spite of who you are. So God is still merciful. He's still kind in that He works in and through you. It's that He gives you the right word at the right moment. He produces fruit in you. That's why Jesus said, I'm the vine and you are the branches. And apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Why nothing? Because in me, there's going to come no good thing. So anything good that you ever do after you receive Christ, anything positive that ever comes out of your mouth, any good deed that ever comes from your heart is only because of the grace of God. And so there's a past grace and there's also a present grace. And the problem is, is that I find that most believers, when they think about grace, they only think about these two categories. They think of grace as something that God's done in the past, or maybe some of them think about grace in terms of how God is working in them now. And I find very few believers who understand a third category that's found in 2 Corinthians 9.8, and for me, about five years ago, revolutionized my understanding of both the promises of God, how to fight sin, and what it means to walk the Christian life. So what I'm going to share with you is really, really important, and it's this concept, a concept called future grace. And that is living by faith in the future promises or the promises that God gives us that are yet to be realized in the future. It's grace because we receive favor, empowerment, provision, or blessings from God, and they're coming, so we receive those things. It's future because it's not present yet. It's something that we're living out. We see the promises of God. We act on them in belief that those promises are going to come true. So future grace certainly includes your eternal destiny, a belief in heaven. But it includes far more than that. It includes what will happen tomorrow. How you'll respond when an annoying person talks to you in the hallway. What you're going to do when someone cuts you off on your way to Kadoba? You're going to find out all of these things that today are going to relate to future grace. What do you do when your kids wake you up from a nap? How do you fight the thought to kill them? What do you do? There's future grace involved. And it's as simple, as practical as that. So the reason this is so important is that central to the Christian life and to sanctification is this issue of future grace. 
Let me explain. The Christian life is lived in a promise battle. The Christian life is lived in a promise battle. The world, the flesh, the devil offer you promises in the form of sinful opportunities. Do this and you'll be happy. Buy this, you'll be secure. Develop a relationship with this person and they'll really fulfill you. And all of these promises, and Satan has been a master of that since the Garden of Eden. The very first temptation he offered to Adam and Eve was a temptation of promise. You won't die. You will be like God. That's the promise. And there's all these promises coming at us all the time, tempting us, trying to get us to to somehow go a particular direction. And in contrast to that are the promises of God's Word, the promises of what it means to live in light of the glory of God's grace. This is how we grow. By taking the promises of the world and eclipsing them with the promises of God. This is why you have to know the Word of God. That's why you have to listen You have to understand what the scriptures say. You have to develop an arsenal. So when the promises of the world come your direction, you can fight those promises off with greater, more glorious, more sovereign, more beautiful, more supreme promises. So you can learn how to say no by saying yes to something greater. This is the life of faith. This is how we order our lives by the promise of God. We do things because we believe there will be an effect. Some of you made New Year's resolutions or goals that you're going to lose weight. Maybe you started going to a gym. And one of the things that you'll know is that going to a gym requires a faith step. It means that even though I'm running on this treadmill for three miles, I don't feel calories burning. I feel pain, lots of it. I feel aggravation that this is hard. And the reality is there's nothing besides a little meter to show me how many calories I'm burning. And I'm believing that it's going to work. If I don't lose weight or get in shape because I decide I'm not going to get on that treadmill, it's no one else's fault but mine. I'm the one who's got to get on and believe this makes a difference. So when you're lifting weights and you're like, this is so hard, this is better work, right? And you're doing it and you're working hard because you're believing that your effect will cause a change. In the same way, taking a step of faith in regards to God's word means that you see what God says and saying, you know what, I'm going to believe that and then I'm going to do something about it. So living by faith in future grace is not just simply believing that it's real. No, it's even more than that. It's believing that it's real. And here's the key. And then taking specific action steps. Or here's how I've said it. Or ordering your life in accordance with God's word. So it's not just believing it. There's a lot of people who claim to be Christians who just believe what the Bible says, but they don't do anything about it. They're not real believers. They're just people who think they believe. Belief follows by action, and that's where real faith comes in. As Augustine said, faith alone saves, but the kind of faith that saves is not alone. So, the Christian life is a promise battle. You fight promise with promise. For example, I develop an arsenal of of verses, and I've even developed a list of, of things that are promise for promise. Example, when I begin to be too concerned about what other people think of me, I fight by faith with this promise, Romans 8.31, what shall we say to these things if God be for us, who can be against us? 
So if anybody else in this room wrestles with fear of man, and you're like, wonder what they think of me, and wonder what they think of me, and wonder what they think of me, and wonder what they think of me, fight that thought with the promise, who cares what they think of me? If God is for me, who can be against me? Answer, no one. No one. When I grow impatient, thinking that waiting is a waste, Anybody else think waiting is a waste? I got all kinds of things I could be doing, and I got to do this. This is slow. This is boring. This is a waste. I mean, if my DSL line drops a little bit, I'm kind of I'm kind of torqued. You know, come on, come on, let's speed it up. Or when it comes to an answer from the Lord, or when it comes to something that I'm really passionate about, I fight by faith with the promise. Isaiah 64: From of old, no one has heard nor perceived by the ear, nor I has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for Him. Waiting is not a waste when we're waiting on the Lord. When the fleeting pleasures of greed or pride or lust come knocking at my door, I fight by faith with the promise to set the mind on the flesh is death, Mark, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. That real life, real living, real happiness, real joy, the ultimate joy of being human is found not in the empty promises that the devil and my flesh or the world offer me, but it is found in the fulfillment of what it means to be in a right relationship with my Creator God. That's real life. That's real joy. When anxiety or worry conquer my heart, Out of a fear of the unknown, I fight by faith with the promise. Seek first, Mark, the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So it's promise against promise that the power of no is in a stronger yes. Yes, I believe your word. Yes, I believe your promise. Yes, I will treasure you. Now the question is, If that's what future grace is, and that's the concept of a promise battle, then how does that intersect with giving? Here's how. Giving is essentially living by faith in God's promise to provide everything I need. So giving, then, church, is just simply a a simple expression that I really do want to live by God's promises. I want to live on future grace. In fact, I would tell you that I think giving is an elementary step when it comes to living by faith in future grace. In other words, I think that if you don't practice the reality of living by faith in God's future grace through giving, are you really going to think that you're going to win the battle with A-team sins like greed and pride and lust? If you can't have God show Himself strong in your money, do you really think He's going to show Himself strong or you're going to allow Him to show Himself strong in the A-team kind of sins in your life? John Owen, 16th century Puritan, said the way to defeat sin is find one to go after, defeat it, and the effect will be remarkable on other sins in your life. See, here's the thing. On the platform of giving... You learn how to live by faith in future grace. You see, what Paul is saying here is something really important. That it's an act of faith to give because I could claim more security and safety 
in my portfolio than I do in God's promises. When I give, it's an act of faith where I choose to live on God's ability to provide for my family, not for me to figure out how things are going to work out. Living by faith means that I see the promises of God's word, I act, and then I live in faith on those promises. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, it's not the only place that this shows up. For example, go over to um, Hebrews 13 and verse 5. Hebrews 13, 5. Again, what I'm trying to show you here is that the promises of God are the means by which we combat the promises of the world, the flesh, and the devil. So God says this, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. So there's there's the command. Don't love money and be content. And listen, all day long you can say to yourself, don't love money, be content. Don't love money, be content. Don't love money, be content. And that's not going to work. Because you can't just say that over and over. That's not enough. That's just a no. You have to give your heart a big time yes. And what does he give in the text? Look at it. He says, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. There's a big promise. So the question is then, how do you combat the love of money and a lack of contentment? Answer, you stake your claim on the promise, God will never leave me nor forsake me. So, he says, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can Visa do to me? (laughs) Oh, no, let's say that. What can man, sorry, do to me? The solution to loving money and a lack of contentment is to believe God's promise. The promise of God overpowers the love or the promise of money. Now this has serious implications for giving and for your Christian life. Because here's why. Your simple act of generosity could have very little to do with money. In fact, it doesn't have a lot to do with money anyways. Money is just a platform. For some of you, your simple act of generosity could be the first decisive blow of a thousand to come where you say, I am no longer going to believe the vain promises of this world. I'm going to live by faith in the promises of God for my life, my struggles, my marriage, my children, my career, my fears, my addictions, and I'm going to show my own heart that I believe this by how I handle money. That's why this passage is in the middle of a section about money. So, that's what future grace is. There's four promises here in this text that I want to give you. The first promise is this. God is able. Say that with me. God is able. The text says this. And God is able. Here's what the passage is telling us. It tells us that money and our giving of it reminds us that God has an infinite capacity. Do you know God has infinite potential beyond your wildest dreams? That God has ability, He has capacity beyond what we can even imagine. God has the ability of a sovereign creator. For example, Psalm 50 verse 10 says, For every beast in the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. It means that, that God owns everything. He can make those cattle go wherever He wants, and we can pray Him, God, make them come our direction. Make them come our way. And God can do that. The king's heart is a a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. So what what these passages are telling us is that God is infinitely powerful, infinitely rich, 
And giving causes me to put my hope on His ability, not mine. It is acting by faith on the promise that God has a high capacity and I can trust Him. So here's where the rubber meets the road. Money can create a sense of personal security and self-made power. And when you give, it creates a level of insecurity or a gap in which you give evidence that God can be trusted. Giving is your way of saying, God, you control it all. Do you know God controls the heart of your boss? You know, he thinks he's in charge, but he's not in charge. No, no, no. You can look at him with a smile on your face when you walk in on Monday. You're like, yeah, you're not in charge. You know, but don't be disrespectful. But you know that, because then we might have another problem, but God is in charge. Do you know God controls the receiving of the bids in your world? Do you know that God controls the return on your investments, the warranties on your purchases, the demeanor of somebody in a customer service desk, the longevity of your roof, the profits of your company? God controls all the levers of life and He's infinitely able and giving connects me to that truth where I say to Him, God, you're in control and you are able. Therefore, I give because I believe that you have an infinite capacity to meet my needs. One of our elders, Jim, come up here, told me a story um, uh, a couple weeks ago about how this um, was uh, playing out in their life. And uh, so I invited uh, one of our elders, Jim Nossett, to come and share the story of his uh, family with you here for a moment. Morning. Um, over the past year, Lori and I have just been amazed at what God is doing here at College Park. It's pretty incredible, isn't it? Um, and uh, we were convinced that we as a church need to step up and be good stewards of what God's given us, both of the property that he's given us here and also this incredible opportunity to minister to the people who are just pouring through the doors. And so Lori and I knew that uh, the Lord was calling us to make a commitment to the building fund. And um, the problem is that was going to be a bit tough for us because during the substantial part of the giving time, we're going to have two kids in college, one in law school, one in college, and paying for all of that. And that was uh, going to really stretch us. It was going to require work and, uh, and sacrifice and uh, make, it, it, make things pretty tough. But we knew the Lord was calling us to do it. And uh, so we had to look at each other and pray and ponder and say, okay, what are we supposed to do? And he brought us to an amount uh, that made us uh, gulp, like, like Mark said. Uh, it was just really, really a, uh, a deal where we thought, well, God, you're going to stretch us, but we think that you're calling us to this. We don't know how it's going to work. Um, so we uh, decided to give that amount, and um, just before we turned in the commitment, uh, one day I looked up and saw this big wet spot on our living room ceiling, and you know where that's going. And uh, so we called out some uh, some experts that we trust implicitly, and they came out and said, Jim, uh, this is not like just a fix-it thing. You need a new roof uh, to the tune of $17,000. And to the Nossets, that is a huge ouch. And so um, we, we kind of gulped, and for literally a minute or two, it kind of came to our mind, I wonder if maybe we're maybe not supposed to commit quite so much, because look at this big bill. But at the same time, we knew in our hearts that God had called us to do it. It was clear, and um, we needed to obey, and uh, we, we knew that he was going to provide for us, so we said, okay, we're going to go for it. Um, well, a couple of years ago, there was a big hailstorm out in Brownsburg, and it beat up everybody's roof, and everybody in our neighborhood, their insurance company, got them a new roof, except, guess who? And uh, you ever been there, done that? And so um, uh, they had come out, they looked at it, and they declined us and said there's not enough damage. 
And so now I'm looking at this roof that's going bad saying, if they just would have replaced the roof, we'd be okay. We wouldn't have to pay this money. Um, so it came to our hearts. Why don't you call the insurance company one more time, which is kind of a typically futile thing. But we thought, okay, Lord, if you want us to. We called the insurance company out. Uh, this really tough adjuster who's supposed to be like the toughest around went up on our roof. And after about an hour, he came down and he put his arm around me and he said, we're going to give you a new roof. I was like, wow. And Lori and I were just giddy because we knew this is a God thing. This was totally a God thing. Um, it was just, it was also him reinforcing, hey, I called you to give something. I, I, I'm going to provide it. You just take, you just do what I've told you to do. And so uh, we turned in our commitment, uh, which we had already decided we were going to do anyway. And uh, a couple weeks later, the transmission went out on our car. <laughs> so uh, that's about a $3,500 bill. But here's the thing. We had a 100,000-mile warranty on the car and about 95,000 miles on the car. You know, now, the way the Nasus drive, that was about three months' worth of driving. And if that car would have waited three more months before it broke down, we'd have been paying that bill. But the warranty covered it. And the Lord was just once again saying, I got you covered. You just obey me. So, so here's the thing. He doesn't have to do that. We didn't have to have warranties. And there may be something that breaks down that we won't have a warranty or insurance for. That's the plain truth. But the fact still remains. When God calls us, he expects us to obey. But when we do, he provides us the, um, the means to obey him. And so I just want to encourage you. Don't fear. Just have faith. Ask the Lord, what am I supposed to do? Please take also seriously the, the stewardship that he's entrusted you with. The stewardship of your finances and the stewardship of the opportunity that you have to get involved in what, with what God is doing here because it's an awesome thing. Ask him what he wants you to do, commit to that, and then sit back and watch him provide. Amen. Thanks, Thanks Jim. Amen. God controls your transmission. He controls big insurance guys on the top of your roof, right? So you're huddle up your little family. Get him, Lord, while he's up there. Just get him. Get him. Get his heart, Lord. Get his heart. God can do that. He can do that. He doesn't have to, but he can. And every time you give, listen, you are saying, God, we believe you are able. We will trust you, not our portfolio. Number two, promise two, grace is on the way. Say it. Grace is on the way. This is something you're going to have to say to each other. Honey, remember, grace is on the way. The promise is that God is able to make all grace abound to you. Notice that the provision that God provides here is not just money. That's really important. Money could be the grace, but it could be something else. The kind of grace that Paul heard from Jesus when he said, My grace is sufficient for you. What is this grace? It's the grace of supernatural spiritual provision from God to you to do His will. It could be suddenly a new oneness in making financial decisions as a couple. Suddenly you're no longer arguing about where you spend money. And there's like a presence of Christ among you because you've decided that, look, we're going to trust God with our finances. It could be a new desire to live within your means, a new ability to say no to things, an ability to pay down your debt faster, a discipline to do so, a new joy in your relationship with the Lord, an ability to no longer worry, or an amazing preservation of what you own so that nothing breaks. There's like 400,000 miles on that van, Lord, and it's because of you. Maybe that's a little big. I don't know. The point is this, trusting God's ability results in an outpouring of grace. And what happens is that giving puts that into practice, where we tangibly say to the Lord, 
I believe that when I give, grace is already on the way. That's what this verse says. God is able to make, to make all grace abound to you. Promise number three, say it with me. I'll have everything I need. Say it again. I'll have everything I need. You see, here's the problem. Giving creates a potential gap. Every time you give money away, it reduces your ability to buy what you might need in the future. And the promise that is given here is meant to fight back the temptation to think, if I give, I'll suffer because I won't have something. The word sufficiency here means to have enough or to be content. And what happens is that Paul lines up three Greek words in a row. It literally reads that in all, always, and all things, you will have a sufficiency. You know why? Because Paul knows what we know. Our hearts tend to freak out. And this is a reminder, I'll have everything I need. This is not a promise that you're going to get everything you want. It's a promise that you'll have everything that you need, which is not a bad thing. A child that gets everything he or she wants is what? A brat. That's what she is, or he. Um, He, he. I said he and she, but I said he. Moving along. The promise here anchors us to the fact that God knows better than we do what we really need. And we have to trust Him and say, Lord, apparently you believe that I don't need this. Now some of you are thinking, well, wait a minute, Mark. Isn't it possible that you could obey these commands and bank your life in these promises and give so much away that you're actually foolish? You could give so much away that you don't even take have enough for yourself? And here's what I push back on that. Where in the world is that person? Because I've never found him or her. I haven't. I've never found somebody who's given so much away that they were like, Oh, you know what, honey? Don't give all that away because your dad and I did that and we really regretted it. Oh, my word. We've been this and this. I have, and so you know what I found? I have found folks who have that conversation about the fact that they wasted their lives getting too many things, living for the wrong stuff, and they have found at the end of the day it is better to give than it is to receive. Final promise, I will abound in good works. Say it, I will abound in good works. Here's the final promise, church. Here's the end game. The end game is not stuff. It's all going to end up in a landfill anyways. It is. Someone else is going to own your home, and they're going to decorate it a lot worse than what you did. Someone's going to take your car, and it's going to be scrapped. All your toys are going to be in a landfill for three million years, trying to deteriorate. All those things are going to be there. But what is the end game? The end game is good works. The promise here is that God will cause you to have an excess, or excel, that's what it means to abound, in good works. And that's what we're here for. Newsflash, we are here to do good things. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God beforehand prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So hear me. Giving is a regular, powerful declaration. I love good works more than money. So I give. Listen, every time we give, we bank our life on these four promises. 
that God is able, grace will be given, I'll have what I need, I'll abound in good works. Living on future grace means that we live by faith in the promises of God. So here's my question. Do you, do you really live on the promises of God? Do you see... Do you see vain, fleeting promises offered to you by the world, the flesh, and the devil? Do you see them for what they are? I mean, look at commercials differently today. See them. It's a vain offering of temporary pleasure. And realize what's being offered to you is shallow joy. Do you see where real joy and real contentment is? Do you long today to live by faith in God's promises? Do you long to have a story like Jim has, not just about money, but about your whole life? That you have seen the presence of God, that you agree with the psalmist, that I have tasted and seen, yes, the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in Him. Do you long to learn how to live by faith on God and see that He's real? If so, listen, here's what I'm calling you today. I simply just want you to renew your commitment that, look, I'm going to live by faith, not just on past grace, not just on present grace, but today I'm going to learn to live on future grace in every area of my life, and I'm going to start learning how to do that in the elementary way of how I handle my money and how I do my giving. Because what God wants to do is to platform on the top of giving this concept of future grace and say to us, look, I'm able Grace is on the way. You'll have everything you'll need. You'll abound in good works. All you have to do is just let it go. And you will see how true my word is. That's, that's what he's calling us to do. And to think about. And to live on this thing called future grace. O risen Christ, we pray that you would help us to see now our own hearts and where we need to grow, and what it means for us to truly embrace future promise-based grace. Lord, there has to be people in this room today who, this concept today, oh God, I plead plead with you that you do this, that you'd open their eyes to the life lived on promise, not on performance, but taking God's promises, your promises, and saying, that is true, honey, in our marriage. That's true, my son, in your life. That's true, my dear daughter, and how you can live. This is true, Sunday school class. This is how we can live in our small group. This is truth. Let's bank our life on it. And, oh, Lord, that you liberate us today from besetting sins of anxiety and fear and pride and lust and greed and And you do it by how we give. Lord, let giving today be a key that unlocks so much obedience. Please, O Lord. In a moment, our prayer team will be up here afterwards if you need someone to pray with, just to say, you know what, pray that I'd live in future grace. Pray that I'd live on God's promises, not the promises of the world. There's some of you today that this needs to be a decisive Moment on this day, February 28th, where you say it's time to live by faith in future grace. So, Lord, I pray you would empower what happens next in this room and in our hearts. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.